So glad uh, all of you are here this morning and invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter. And let me just say that I hope you're having uh, the best summer ever uh, this summer. And I want to talk to you today about everything we need for the best summer ever and for that matter, for the best life ever. If you haven't visited our church website and gone to the Best Summer Ever resources, I hope you'll do that because there is some summer left and it's not too late to get in on some of the uh, activities uh, that are mentioned there that are focused on maximizing relationships, family relationships, relationships with friends, and relationship with the Lord. And uh, you'll benefit from looking at uh, those resources on the website. Before I read the scripture, I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a man named Jed, a poor mountaineer, barely kept his family fed. And then one day he was shooting for some food, and up from the ground came a bubbling crude. Oil, that is, black gold, Texas tea. Well, the first thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. Ken folks said, Jed, move away from there. Said, California is the place you ought to be. So they loaded up the truck, and they moved to Beverly Hills, that is, swimming pools and movie stars. And those are part of the lyrics of the ballad of Jed Clampett sung by that famous bluegrass duo, Flat and Scruggs, and it was the theme song for a television series that first aired in 1962 and ran for nine seasons until 1971. And if you turn on your TV today, you can watch the reruns of that show, The Beverly Hillbillies. It's a rags-to-riches story of a man named Jed who discovered oil on his property in Bug Tussle, Arkansas, of all places, and then he moved from Bug Tussle to Beverly Hills, and the show follows what it's like for a bunch of hillbillies to live in a mansion in Beverly Hills. This passage in 2 Peter asked us and urges us to be a whole lot like Jed Clampett. It urges us, like Jed, who moved from that poverty in Arkansas to the riches and abundance of Beverly Hills, it asked us to make a move, not a physical move like Jed made, but a spiritual move. A move from spiritual poverty to spiritual abundance in Christ. A move from the poverty of our sinful desires to the riches and abundance of a godly life in Jesus Christ. So hear the passage in verse 3, 2 Peter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil, evil desires. As best we can tell, Peter is writing to believers who were scattered over Asia Minor. He is probably writing from prison in Rome just before his death, about 67 A.D. 
these believers are undergoing, if uh, indeed First and Second Peter were both written to the same group of people, they're undergoing persecution. In addition to that, they are under attack from false teachers in the church in danger of being led astray. And those false teachers were telling them, uh, you, we're actually using Scripture to uh, justify living in sin and following evil desires. So these believers were from under attack from with outside the church, persecution, and from within the church, false teachers. And Peter's reminding them. He's speaking to them saying, you have everything you need to escape your sinful desires and live a godly life. The scripture applies to us just as directly. In Christ, we have everything we need to escape our sinful desires and live a godly life. So let's just walk through these verses together and try to look at some of the truth that's here. Verse 3 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That word life is used throughout the New Testament. Jesus used the word to refer to himself in John 14, 6, where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus also used the very same word in John 10, 10, where he talked about why he came in the first place. He said, I am come that you might have life and have it to the full, or have it abundantly, abundant life. And the Apostle John used that same word in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Peter is saying that Jesus has given us as believers everything we need to experience abundant life here on this earth and eternal life in heaven with him. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. That word godliness is used in only a few places in the New Testament. It refers to a right attitude toward God as well as right behavior. Godliness is an attitude toward God of reverence and awe and submission where, whereby we uh, submit our lives to follow him and it results in a life that honors and glorifies God. A genuine relationship with God always reflects godly character. As we enter into relationship with him, he changes us to be like himself. And there is no better life, there is nothing more desirable than living a godly life. But you couldn't tell that by listening to popular culture. Godliness is not valued in our culture. When's the last time you saw a commercial that said, if you buy this product, it'll help you live a godly life? I don't think I've ever heard one. Godliness is by, in our culture is considered dull and boring. If you live a godly life, you're missing out on the real thing. But Psalm 92 says, Psalm 92, 12, the godly will flourish like palm trees and grow strong like cedars of Lebanon. 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 says, train yourselves to be godly. Godliness has value for all things, holding promise both for the present life and the life to come. 
And Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The godly life is the life of abundance, of true joy, blessing, contentment, and fulfillment. It is the life that thrives under any and all circumstances, including suffering and pain. Now, Peter put a parameter on this everything we need when he used the word life and words life and godliness. God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He did not say God has given us everything we want. He did not say God has given us everything we need to live as we please or everything we need to achieve the American dream. He's saying rather that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness And this includes a new nature and the ability to escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And we find that at the very end of verse 4, if you want to take a look at that. So that you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. The divine nature is an unusual phrase in the New Testament. It sounds like a phrase that would have been used in the pagan Greek religions of the day. And for some, Peter, for some reason, Peter chose to use this phrase to refer to our union with Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What Peter is saying at the end of verse 4 is similar to what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And he's saying, because Christ lives in me, I participate in a new divine nature within me. Galatians 5.16 is similar. Live by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. When we live by the Spirit of God, God who lives within us, we are participating in the divine nature And Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you will put to death the misdeeds of the... But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So participating in the divine nature means that we have a new nature. It's the nature of Christ living within us in the power of His Holy Spirit. It does not mean that we become perfect or that we become divine. It does not mean that our sinful nature that we're born with is taken away. It does mean that as we live in union with Christ and rely on His Spirit who lives within us, then we have everything we need to escape our sinful desires and the corruption and the pain that results from living by evil desires. That brings us to the phrase evil desires, which you see there at the end of verse 4. Evil desires, so that it says, so that you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Peter refers to our desires as evil because our desires grew out of our fallen sinful nature. You know the story of Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. Because of their rebellion, they became fallen, sinful people with a fallen, sinful nature living in a fallen, sinful world. And all of us as their descendants 
have inherited that same fallen sinful nature. It's interesting, as you read through Genesis, it's not long after the fall, that we're given this account of the Lord looking at human beings in Genesis 5, 6, and coming to this, this conclusion. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Colossians 3, 5 identifies our sinful nature as the source of our sinful desires. It says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature and evil desires is one of those things listed as belonging to this earthly sinful nature that we have. So what Peter is really saying here is that our biggest problem is us. When it comes to living a godly life, our evil desires that hold us in their grip and lead us to behaviors that hurt and destroy us and those around us that we have relationship with. That brings us to the word corruption in verse 4. Peter is saying that when we leave by, live by our sinful evil desires, corruption is the result. And that word corruption means decay or rottenness. James, uh, Ephesians 4.22 is very similar. It says, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its evil desires. And James 1, 14 and 15 goes the next step and shows the ultimate result of living by our evil desires. James says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Our desire, James says, gives birth to sin, and sin ultimately always brings forth death, if not in this life, in the life to come. But thanks be to God, based on what Peter is saying, we can escape the corruption and death that results from our evil desires. We no longer have to be enslaved to our desires and live, live a life that leads to corruption, decay, rottenness, and death. Jesus has given us everything we need to escape our evil desires and live a godly life. Scientists tell us that a newborn baby is born with approximately 10 trillion cells. And each cell has 46 chromosomes, and each chromosome has tens of thousands of genes. An individual cell has approximately a million genes, and those genes consist of DNA, which are larger molecules that look like a long spiral staircase. And that the DNA from one human body, if laid end to end, would stretch from the moon and back 20,000 times. That DNA contains our genetic code. And that genetic code is the blueprint that regulates our human growth and development, the development of our human body from birth to adulthood. In that DNA, when a baby is born, rest all the genetic code it will need to grow to adulthood. In much the same way, when we are reborn, when we are spiritually born, we receive in Jesus Christ everything we need 
for life and godliness. We have, have it all. That, and it's theirs, it is ours as a present possession. Notice the tense of the verb. Everything, his divine power has given us everything we need. It's a past tense verb. God has already done it. He gave us that when we trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior. At the moment we trust Jesus, our past is taken care of. All of our sins are forgiven and the slate is wiped clean. Our future is made secure. We're given the assurance and guarantee of a home in heaven, eternal life. And our present is transformed. We receive a new nature that contains everything we need for life and godliness. And it is a present possession that we currently have. It's not something that we have to wait for. It's not something we have to pray to receive. When we receive Christ, we receive it all. Making a decision to trust Christ is like striking oil. We become spiritually rich, wealthy beyond imagination. We take up residence in a spiritual Beverly Hills, so to speak. Ephesians 1.3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. There's nothing else we need. We already have it all. Jesus lives in us in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we trust him each day, he frees us from our evil desires that produce death so that we can experience life and godliness in relationship with him. Everything we need is a present possession, and it's a gift from Jesus himself. Notice it says, he has given it to us. Now let me ask you a question. Would Jesus go to all of those lengths to give us everything we need if we already had everything we need? Well, obviously no. He gave us everything we need because we don't have everything we need. Something is missing. We are inadequate in ourselves. Inadequate in ourselves. We are sinful and broken. Jesus talked about it this way. One of my favorite verses, John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me you can do. How much? Nothing. And Paul in Romans 7, 18 says, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. We're powerless to overcome our sinful desires and live a godly life. That's why Jesus gives us, has given us everything we need. And it's so important for us to admit that we don't have everything we need. So what does all this mean? Why is Peter writing this? It means that Jesus is our biggest fan. He is our cheerleader for living a godly life. He wants us to have not only the best summer ever, but the best life ever. ever. He wants us to succeed in godly living. He is not standing on the sidelines waiting for us to mess up and fail so he can condemn us and shame us. No, he is for us. He's on our side. He is our advocate. He has not, nor will he ever abandon us. He will not leave us on our own to manage as best we can. He has given us everything we need to be who he wants us to be and do what he wants us to do. He gives us peace and our anxiety. 
He gives us hope and, and encouragement in our depression and discouragement. He gives us freedom from shame and guilt. He gives us true worth and significant and our significant significance as one of his children. He gives us wisdom in our tough decisions, strength and endurance for hardships, difficulties, and suffering. He gives us adequacy. He is our adequacy in our inadequacy. He is our strength and weakness. He is our boldness to share the gospel. He sheds abroad in our heart the love that we need to love those that are hard to love. He gives us gifts for serving within the church body, power for following through on com commitments we've made to serve in the church. He gives us courage to come out of isolation and share the truth about ourselves with others so we can be fully known and fully loved by our fellow believers. He gives us freedom from sin patterns and destructive habits, idol worship, willingness to forgive those who have hurt us, healing, reconciliation in relationships. He has given us everything we need. What does it mean? Well, it's really a big reality check for you and me. If I look at my life and conclude that I'm not living, that I'm not growing and living a godly life, you know, none of us ever arrive there, but the evidence of Christ at work in our lives and the evidence of being a child of God is that we're, we're growing toward godliness. We're becoming more like him. And if I look at my life and conclude that that's not happening, whose fault is it? Where does the responsibility lie? If I'm living in the poverty of my sinful desires, whose fault is it? I can't blame my past because Jesus is able to set me free from the wounds of my past and bring healing. I can't blame my sinful nature because, or the nature of my sin, that it's somehow more difficult than somebody else's sin, that it's somehow unique, and I can't overcome it because it's something special, because Jesus has conquered all sin and is able to set me free from any sin. I can't blame the enemy because Jesus has overcome the enemy on my behalf and greater is he who lives in me than he who lives in the world. If I'm not growing in a godly life, it's because I am making a choice to follow my sinful desires. It's because I love my sin more than I love Jesus and the life he offers me. It's because I'm trying to serve two masters, to have it both ways, thinking I can enjoy my sin just a little bit while getting just enough of Jesus to make it to heaven, trying to walk the fence and have it both ways. It's because I'm not doing my part to grow. You see, the truth is that Jesus has given us everything we need for life and godliness, but we also have, have to make every effort to grow. Look at down in verse 5, starting there. For this very reason, so what's the reason? Because he has get, given us everything we need, okay? For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and your goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. 
Peter is saying two things here that seem to be contradictory. Jesus gives us everything we need, and we must give our best effort. But they're not contradictory, because when we give our best effort, we position ourselves to receive in relationship with Christ everything we need. And even when we aren't willing to give our best effort, we can pray and ask God to make us willing. I love the verses over in Philippians 2 that say, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Sometimes my prayer before the Lord is, Lord, I want to be willing. Work in me to make me willing. And in time, if I position myself in relationship with him and draw near to him, he draws near to me and brings about a willingness that doesn't come from me, but comes from his grace living in me. So four action items that we can take to move from poverty of our sinful desires to the riches and abundance of Christ. And one, I'll name four, one is become more intimately acquainted with Christ. Now that's found in our passage, verses 3 and 4. Did you note that his divine power has given us everything we need through what? Through our knowledge of him who called us. Jesus is the one who called us. And so we find everything we need by getting to know Jesus. Not, not a head knowledge, not, not just not facts about Jesus, but an experiential and personal knowledge that grows out of a personal relationship with him. We will live in the riches and abundance of Christ only to the extent that we know him and are intimately acquainted with him. Are you making every effort to engage in the disciplines which help you know Christ better? We mention this almost every sermon, I think. Prayer, that we need to engage with him in prayer. That we need to engage in his word so he can talk to us. Memorize his word, meditate on his word. Have times of solitude when we're alone with the Lord. I had one of my accountability partners ask me about two weeks ago, how's your quiet time going? And I said, well, I have to be honest and say it's not going well. I've been caught up in busyness thinking that I don't have enough time to connect with the Lord to know him intimately and personally on a daily basis. Oh, sometimes I've opened the Bible so I can check the box But I find that, and I said to him, I find that unless I take time to read the Word and then write in my journal what God's saying to me with the Word, that I haven't really met with him. I haven't really heard him speak. So that was a wake-up call to me. It's it's, it's amazing how easy it is to drift away from those disciplines. So one of the disciplines that connects us with everything that Christ has given us is that discipline of knowing him on a daily basis, of getting in his word and talking to him. A second thing this passage talks about that we can do to experience everything that Christ has given us is to rest in God's promises. 
verse 4, the beginning says, He has given us His very great and precious promises. One of the things I love about Scripture is looking for promises that are made to us as believers. The Bible is full of promises that God makes on our behalf. And He's a God who always keeps His promises. And part of living a godly life and being able to experience everything that we have in Christ is finding the promises that apply to the challenge that, challenges that we're facing in our lives and digging those promises out of the Word and entering into prayer and saying, Lord, you're a God who keeps your promises, and this is what you've promised in your Word, and I'm asking humbly that you would keep this promise on my behalf so that I can be and do the person that you want me to be and do what you want me to do. So everything we need is found in knowing Christ, in the promises of God. And then the third thing this passage talks about is daily yielding to the Spirit of Christ who lives within us. That is a discipline of living, of participating in that divine nature that we've been given. Everything we need is found in Christ living in us in the power of His Spirit. One of my very favorite promises is Galatians 5.16. It says, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Oftentimes my prayer with this verse is, Lord, you have promised that if I live by your Spirit, I'll not gratify the desires of my sinful nature. So, Lord, I'm starting out this day with you, yielding to the power of your Spirit who lives within me. Help me today to live by your Spirit and not by the desires of my sinful nature. So that is a discipline that we develop and that we build into our lives so that we can experience everything that Christ makes available to us. And then the fourth is staying connected to the body of Christ in intimate relationships with fellow believers. I love just reading through verse 3 and noticing all the plural pronouns that are found in the verse. His divine power has given us everything we need for godliness through our knowledge of him who called us. When Christ calls us, he calls us to be part of his body, the church composed of our fellow believers, and it's impossible to have everything we need in isolation and aloneness. It's only possible to have everything we need in Christ if we're strongly connected with other believers who know us and know the truth about us, and who love us as we are. We have everything we need for life and godliness, only in connection with those other believers. Do you remember Jed's dilemma? Would he live in the poverty of the hills of Arkansas, or would he choose to move to riches and abundance of Beverly Hills? It was not an easy decision for Jed, so he sought some counsel. If you watch the pilot show of the program, you'll discover that he sought out Cousin Pearl Bodine. Do y'all remember Cousin Pearl? And he said to Cousin Pearl, Pearl, what do you think? Do you think I ought to move? And she looked at Jed and said, Jed, how could you even ask? You live eight miles from your nearest neighbor. 
You're overrun with skunks and possums, coyotes and bobcats. You use kerosene lamps for light. You cook on a wood stove both in the summer and the winter. You're drinking homemade moonshine. You're washing your, with homemade lye soap. Your bathroom is 50 feet from the house. And you ask, should you move? Jed thought just a minute, pondered what Cousin Pearl said, and then he said, well, Pearl, I reckon you're right. Man would be a fool to give up all that. (laughs) We laugh. But you know, when we hear the call of Christ to come out of the poverty of our sinful desires, We sometimes hesitate just like Jed did. He wanted to stay with what was familiar. At least for a little while, he thought he wanted to do that. It was risky for him to move out of poverty into wealth and abundance. And the same when we're called out of our sin by Christ. We sometimes hesitate because the familiar is more comfortable than the risk of something new. But God is calling us today as believers. He is calling us to come out of the poverty of our sinful desires and live in the riches of Christ. And he's calling those of of you who have not yet come to faith in Christ, he's calling you out of the poverty of sin to a relationship with Christ. We need to be like Jed and be willing to take action, not to move physically, but to move spiritually toward Christ, to embrace all that we have in him.